stand today on the edge of a new frontier, the frontier of the 1960s, the frontier of unknown opportunities and perils, the frontier of unfilled hope and unfilled threat. Banded together from remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time, the Legion of... It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. Well, it's the Legion of Dudes back once again. Uh, hey, the guys, this is Adam Umack. Welcome to the Legion of Dudes podcast. Um, tonight I'm joined by Johnny M., and Russell Latham, and after a long absence, what could only be described as an epic absence, Adam Reed is back with us. How you doing, Reed? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Awesome, man. Well, it's glad to have you on board for New Frontier. And um, folks, this is part two of New Frontier. You can check our backlog at legionofdudes.com or halfhourwasted.com to check out uh, our podcast and Brad and Frank and Bill's podcast. Um, be sure to check us out also at thecomicforums.com for our forum space. So uh, thanks for listening, first of all, and uh, like Kingdom Come and Watchmen in the past, we hope we do justice, no pun intended, to uh, New Frontier. So we're going to go ahead and get started. Last episode of New Frontier, we left off with Captain Cold being vanquished by uh, Barry Allen the Flash, and we pick up with another breakneck scene as far as speed goes with uh, Ace Pappy Morgan and also with a uh, grown-up Hal Jordan joyriding uh, in the Nevada desert toward a test site. Hal more or less uh, shows you know, his ambition of being a pilot like his dad, Martin Jordan. He has a flashback to when he, had, when he shot the Viet Cong back in the, the war, and Ace has some good news for him that Ferris Aircraft yeah, has a job. That would be Korean, by the way. What did I say? <laughs> Viet Cong. Sorry, I had to correct you on that. Damn it, Reed. do you think you're really in a position to be correcting people at this point? When was the last time you were on a show, November? <laughs> History's changed. <laughs> Reed Booster Gold, he went back and changed it. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I didn't mean to. Now June Bob's going to be angry at me now. Well, maybe you, actually. <laughs> I, I just couldn't, as a as a person holding a history degree, I, I just couldn't uh, let that go. Well, you know what they say about people who like history, don't you? They don't have jobs. <laughs> Man, you need to set me up for that joke. You know what they say about people who like history, don't you, Reed? What's that? They, they're living in the past. Uh, <laughs> no, they're doomed to be idiots. <laughs> Oh, man. Better keep going on here. And so much so that that kind of dovetails into um, kind of like a a flashback of sorts in which um, the soon-to-be members of the Challengers of Unknown have a big-time explosion. And many things are awakened. Not the center itself, but kind of like that kind of cosmic binding that gets the Challengers together, kind of like Ace and Hal itself. So, to start off part two of the show, kind of an ambitious Hal Jordan that we see. Reluctant, but he still has that uh, that edge to him. What do you guys think? Is this sort of the way that Hal Jordan's always been portrayed, or was this kind of like a reimagining? I know how this is how he's portrayed recently, like in the Jeff John stuff. Has he always been kind of like the wild man? The thrill seeker? Yeah. 
Absolutely. I, I think that kind of, uh, you know, goes with him, uh, you know, like, uh, he doesn't wear the ring whenever he's, when he was in the, uh, Test pilot, in the, the planes, excuse me, at Ferris Air. So there's kind of like that kind of like daredevil element to, to Hal. Right. I would even say, I'm, I've been reading the, uh, first essential of Green Lantern, uh, recently, and I would say that totally personified him. That was like the whole of his character. There's really nothing else to it besides, Pilot, the the Daredevil type of character. It's it's really what personified him. Remind me again that this came out in uh, what year again? New Frontier. Oh three oh four. Oh three oh four. Okay. And when did Jeff Johns Jeff Johns took over Green Lantern and relaunched after that? Right, right around there probably. Well, it was about five years ago, um, five six years ago since Re- um, Rebirth and Green Lantern number one came out. So. If not neck and neck, I'd say very close. Yeah, right. Because they they definitely mirror. And again, I don't I don't know the history of Green Lantern, so you guys could probably answer this better. But this Hal Jordan definitely seems to be the same Hal Jordan that Jeff Johns relaunched. And you could tell me that that's the same as it's always been. You know, I, I don't know that they seem to be the same character from the Johns relaunch. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, there's a lot more history in here because there's, you know, 400 pages, most of which he's at Ferris or he's training, you know, or he's in the Air Force. But the way Hal's kind of presented, you know, still keeps in line that kind of thrill-seeker aspect to things. So what I think is, is happening here is that, you know, I think Jeff liked Darwin's take so much that Darwin is the one who drew those those couple issues of Green Lantern um, when Hal and Kyle kind of had their first real get together after Rebirth so much. So um, I think that it, it definitely falls in line with the character. I think the only like real hitch is the the actual physical timeline because you know if 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 um, you know he was if Hal was overseas in the war, I mean he'd be pushing you know sixty at, at this point in time. So other than, you know, the eternal youth of comic books, I think this is pretty consistent. Okay, uh, I might need some Silver Age help from you guys with this one, but the flashback sequence is really a dream taking place in Montreal. Um, the New Frontier timeline, timeline has been pushed up to 1957, where uh, Red, King of the Daredevils, right, uh, Red Ryan wakes up and has this, you know, bizarre dream about the slash flashback. The plane crashed, and, uh, you know, he gets called out as... Uh, Almost as if like uh, something and, and a lost type of way is pulling him to this source, and it's it's the wreckage of that plane crash. And he, along with the rest of his buddies, the professor and everybody else, uh, you know, gathers at the wreckage site, and this is you know the assemblage of uh, the challengers of the unknown. And they're kind of you know wondering why the four of them you know survived this you know, this accident and uh, looking for, you know, a greater purpose. We'll see the challengers in a little bit in the newsreel footage. The challengers haven't got that much exposure um, in D.C. as of late. Uh, the one, I, I guess, kind of a more recent example was during Countdown that uh, Kyle Rayner, Ray Palmer, uh, Donna Troy, and uh, the argument could be made for Jason Todd were, were also called, you know, challengers of the multiverse or just, uh, you know, the, the Challengers team as well. Other than Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale's uh, initial project together, uh, Challengers of the Unknown Must Die, um, these guys haven't really been seen in modern-day DC comics. Yeah, I'm pretty much totally unfamiliar with the characters. I've obviously heard of them, and I've heard of the the Tim Sale and Jeff Loeb run, but really, I don't, besides that, I don't, I don't really know much about them at all. 
you know, that um, miniseries was one of the starts to uh, the Tim Sale and the Jeff Loeb partnership. And, of course, the more notable ones were, as we mentioned last week, uh, The Long Halloween and Dark Victory. Yeah, I don't have much exposure to the Challengers either. I think they, they popped up a few times in the 90s when I was reading the Superman run after the, the death and rebirth thing. But other than that, I, I don't have a little bit of exposure. I think, weren't they recently in the uh, Brave and the Bold? Didn't they show up in the Brave and the Bold relaunch? I remember seeing a cover for that, but I didn't read it. Yeah, I think it was early on. But yeah, very. like I said, I don't, I don't have a whole lot of exposure to them at all. After Hal finds out about a potential job at Ferris Air, he has dinner with the boss's daughter, Carol Ferris. You know, we have seen Carol earlier at the boxing match, Ted Grant from last uh, episode. But the, the chemistry between Hal and Carol um, is something that uh, is really, uh, really, really neat to watch. Just like uh, Barry's, you know, already uh, his devotion toward a... Uh, Iris, uh, this is kind of like the whole budding romance. Ben, I think more along the lines that uh, this book really is Hal Jordan's story. I mean, I know you know John Jones comes to Earth, but out of any individual character of uh, in this whole book, I mean, Hal's the one that gets the most face time. How appropriate, though, for I'm just going to say the standard bearer of the Silver Age for DC Comics, though, too. Like we mentioned before, as you mentioned, Adam, it's Hal Jordan's story, but yet. We don't see him as Green Lantern until pretty much the the end of the story. So it's it's kind of funny how it's kind of an origin story for Hal Jordan, but kind of not. Just an interesting take on how they could have done it. And we've seen that before in other origin-type stories. You know, we talk about the Barry Windsor Smith, Smith Weapon X a lot. You know, Wolverine doesn't say a word the whole the whole story. He's kind of like in his tank while the other stuff goes on around him. And... um uh, Daredevil, the man without fear, I think it is. He's not in the Daredevil suit until the last page of the book. Yeah. So that's kind of a cool way to do origins, I think, like showing what, you know, rather than showing, you know, like a year one of the hero, showing like almost the the prequel, you know, the what led up to him being who he is. Okay. So we're in New York City, and at this point, Grace... And uh, Evans and a whole bunch of the other guys uh, run into oh my gosh a giant yellow pterodactyl. Uh, <laughs> Rick, who's also who's uh, you know piloting and all this stuff, uh, you know pretty much has to navigate away from this pterodactyl, and it gets blown up <laughs> over the Statue of Liberty. Uh, Task Force X, the Suicide Squad, you know does not uh, bode too well over here. And later on in the Pacific, you see uh, Ace and Red and the Professor and everybody else all together in the uh, in the Gizmo One talking to Rick Flagg, who we saw earlier uh, escaped from a dinosaur island. So the Challengers of the Unknown have assembled. They obviously have government funding. Grace is in there with them. They're on Dinosaur Island, and they come across John Redcloud's cave drawing. Or excuse me, I'm going to say like his pictograms and everything that he wrote in the middle of the cave. And the story of the losers, the cave wall... It says, I know you will return to this place. Be forewarned that my visions reveal a spirit so vast that it has no beginning or end. Just an all-consuming circle that dwarfs the monsters uh, that live in this cursed place. It's a living thing. And, you know, Grace and everyone, uh, you know, pretty much get freaked out. And then we have another Tyrannosaurus attack. Uh, this seems to happen a lot on Dinosaur Island. Hence the name. But, um, you know, the Challengers and the rest of Task Force X do manage to get out in time. So this is kind of like a real quick and dirty 
jump back into Dinosaur Island, you know what I mean, and a quick jump back out. This does kind of, you know, uh, you know, they do take some, you know, mission hits and stuff like that, but um, it's a different d- Dinosaur Island than we saw it last time. It's a little more, I'm going to say, not as lush, and it's probably a little more cold as well as far as, you know, how it's drawn. Very, very uh, more, it just seems to be overgrown and wild this time. I really like the splash page uh, with the pterodactyl getting shot down and the Statue of Liberty with the helicopter flying towards the reader. I just yeah. dig that page. I like the color contrasting, you know, with the explosion and the with the yellow and oranges and the Statue of Liberty in green and the blue sky. I just think that's a great-looking page. Yeah, it is really, really cool. I get a real Johnny Quest vibe when they go back to Dinosaur Island and the team is running around when they're in those hovercrafts flying and just some of the things they encounter. I don't know why. It just... and. I guess, too, it's kind of a period piece, you know, 50s, 60s feel, kind of like Johnny Quest was. But whenever I, I read through this and look through it, I always think of Johnny Quest. I don't. I, I want to say that, you know, it seems as though, you know, that that was the kind of uh, house designs back then. Because if you look at, you know, some of the uh, Super Friends uh, cartoons and earlier work that Alex Toth did, that seems to be kind of like a consistency as far as, I'm just going to say, like Space Age design. Kind of like a retro new, or you know what I mean, uh, as far as yeah. um, elements of style go, as far as the the artwork goes. I mean, you know, Toth did, you know, how many uh, horror and romance books and, and whatnot too, aside from his more notable, you know, work on Challenge of the Super Friends. But uh, you know, like the episode with uh, the Furians, which I think was the second episode of Super Friends, that's more or less identical to. Uh, the ship they use more or less identical to uh, you know Gizmo One that the Challengers are on, but you know at the same time, how do you draw the future? You know uh, how much of that is also informed by the Hanna Barbera Studios, like uh, the Jetsons, and you know everything that was uh, on the brink of being done with the Silver Age when um, those animations you know came out. So I think that Johnny Quest is a really good go-to and starter point for how what was also seen in the comics too, Russ. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like anything else. I mean, you determine what the future is going to look like by extrapolating on the present. And, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, it was all big cars and fins and, you know, bubbles and all that kind of stuff. So one thing to note here on the stuff that we're, we get in the absolute, it starts on page 164 um, to 169. For those of you not reading the absolute might wonder what we're talking about where we talk about going back to Dinosaur Island. Um, and the stuff that Adam just mentioned, but this was all added for the absolute only. It was stuff that, that Darwin originally had but didn't leave in. A lot of it was just because he was a strict page count on the issues and he was going long. And then he, you know, all, one of the, one of his comments in the annotations was he didn't quite want to give away the fact that the island itself was a living thing and, and really the, the villain of the story just quite yet. So we see it in the absolutes, but not in the trades or the, uh, or the original issue. So, again, another reason to go out and grab that absolute. So we're going to kind of go over the John Henry arc all at once because the way this is set up in, in the book and in the comic is that you get, like, two or four pages of that storyline every, you know, so often. So I think it's easier if we just, you know, rip the bandit off and, and get everything taken care of. We're in Knoxville, Tennessee, and this is page 155 in the absolute. And um, we get a bunch of uh, clansmen burning a cross and likewise burning uh, homes, and uh, a tree branch snaps, dropping um, a black man to the ground, and he says that he can't move 
and whatnot for a while. Um, he's got a noose around his neck. So in his own words, uh, fate has another plan for him. And with the crosses on fire in the background, himself sent silhouetted against, uh, you know, the blood red sky of, of Tennessee. He sets off and he says, I head into the direction of the white triangles. I head into the dark. So this is certainly a man on a mission here. And this is the character um, that Cook created for this book, um, John Henry. Now, Historically, the Ballad of John Henry, of course, is not, it's not really associated with like, uh, Negro spirituals in the South, but it's more along the lines, uh, I would say, of, uh, American folklore. And just like, uh, you know, the legend of, you know, Pecos Bill or Paul, uh, Paul Bunyan, legend of John Henry is kind of like surrounded in controversy, only that, uh, you know, all of these different, uh, you know, historical spots like, uh, the Chesapeake and Ohio Railway, other places, along Alabama uh, are in constant kind of like historical battles, let's just say, for public relations-wise, for them to be, quote-unquote, the hometown of or the actual American Historical Society site where this uh, fabled um, legend of man versus steam drill machine uh, happened as John Henry was digging into the mountain. So what Cook does here is gradually as... Um, this guy puts uh, his uh, costume together to go after the Klansmen, is he begins to take one of the more traditional, and there have been how many other rewrites and performances since then, one of the more traditional renditions and lyrics to the song, uh, The Ballad of John Henry, and intercuts them with the sequential art, which is that of kind of like, well, a warrior getting ready, kind of like you would see in you know, 300, putting on... Uh, you know, his garments of war while the Klansmen, you know, walk away and continue to burn churches uh, that were, you know, presumably uh, black churches in the South. So much so that um, it's almost like uh, Pickett's Charge when there's just like a huge, you know, giant, uh, you know, trail of fire. And the last words on page 182 of the Absolute is that John Henry told the captain that a man is just a man. And I swear by all, that's right and wrong. I'll kill you right where you stand. And here you see um, the man who was hung, black hood, still with a noose around his neck. And in the great tradition, which we'll see later, of uh, John Henry Irons from the Superman mythology, um, he's got two giant steel uh, sledgehammers in each one of his hands. And thus, this is the origin story, John Henry, an awesome character. I remember uh, watching the the DVD of A New Frontier, and uh, they have some awesome special features on that. I think we've mentioned that before. And I think what Darwin Cook said in that, if I'm remembering correctly, is that he didn't really want to bring John Henry Irons in, the uh, character from DC Comics Now, but he wanted to set up somebody for for John Henry Irons to actually idolize. And uh, so that's where this design from this character came from. So this is steel. Steel is John Henry Irons, right? Before I say something, correct, stupid. correct, yes. So, so yeah, this from, is from uh, Death of Superman, right? Right, right. So this is sort of his model. Yeah, isn't it at the end of the cartoon? I can't remember if it's at the end of the book or not. But they show the kid, and he, he's wearing a jersey, and his last name says Irons, and yeah. he's like reading of the story or whatever. He's actually yep. sitting at uh, John Henry's gravestone. I believe it's in the book also. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, there it is. At very yeah, very end of the book. He's sitting at John Wilson, aka John Henry, and the show a guy named Irons, a kid named Irons with a with a book open and the number seven. So yeah, exactly. It's his his inspiration. 
this is one of the things too that Darwin Cook was really disappointed with that didn't make it to the DVD that we kind of saw it in the background. I think we see it in one of the newsreels where yep. they show, you know, man, you know, lynched and then, you know, you kind of see the, the newspaper article of, you know, the mass vigilante or whatever, but we just kind of get it in the background and not in the foreground. Um, and it was, you know, again, one of his. Re- I get a, uh, a real hooded justice vibe from his design. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. But it, it works so well for the for the background of the character, especially, I mean, the noose. I mean, you just saw a couple pages ago that he was, I mean, they tried to hang him. And, and what a, a scary way, you know, you, you know you've been hanging people and you see a guy coming after you with a noose. I just love the thought of a vigilante running around with two, ha- two big old, you know, anvil hammers. I never thought that, you know, real history... And DC history could fit so well. We talked about the you know House of Un-American Activities and in the, the JSA, you know, being disbanded. But my God, this is a perfect fit, isn't it? I mean, this is a perfect fit for the DC universe in comics too. This is unreal. How cool this is! I agree. We're going to skip to two twenty nine in the absolute, and it says that still um, in Tennessee, uh, he's been trailing the mob. And we don't know if this is that same night, you know, obviously, maybe it's over the course of a couple of days. Um, we, we get the idea from the news report, at least, that it's been a while. He starts um, stalking prey. He's bowled over from, you know, his wounds and whatnot. A little girl comes up to him, and, you know, this is juxtaposed against, you know, seeing the white of the baby's eyes. And he asks the girl, oh, no, please, child, help me, hide me. You know, don't let them get me. He's, you know, he's losing from these guys who've been hunting him, you know, he's been shot. And then this the this little girl just, uh, you know, calls out, he's here, he's here, uh, drops the N-bomb too. And it's just like the absolute innocence of, the, of that child is just taken away. I mean, that's, you know, that's how racism is in a lot of cases. You know, it's, it's generational. And then we're going to cut to broadcast television show, the big picture, which I'm guessing, guys, is pretty much a takeoff on Edward R. Murrow um, smoking during the newscast. He reports that, you know, you've never heard about this guy because he's black. And that just seems to be a very Edward R. Murrow kind of like delivery. And we find out that his name was John Wilson, that he had a wife and daughter. It was actually a three month period that he was, I guess, clan hunting. And, you know, across the world and across the U.S. and Metropolis, Philly, and Gotham, his final thought says, how can America hope to preserve freedom around the world when she can't even guarantee it to millions of her own children? Looking at this, it's kind of a a real big, I guess, downer for the book. There's that, oh my gosh, this is such a cool character. And then, you know, he's, the rug's pulled out from under our feet and, and he's really taken away without much more than his mission to kind of grab, for us to, you know, grasp onto with him. But that's enough because... This is probably one of the, I think, just more uh, poignant storylines and arcs of the whole book, though. It's it's also so important for uh, John Jones because he sees this and he's like, what the reporter's saying is true. And, and if they can't accept even someone of a different color, how are they going to accept uh, someone from a different planet? And I think, I mean, just the expression on his face in those few pages uh, following the report are just kind of foreshadows what's going to happen. Just you can, you can, after you've read it especially, you, you can see what he's thinking. Or It's a nice little eye-opener. You know, the DC tends to get the stigma of being the less realistic 
you know, in terms of comparing Marvel and DC. So this is like some real world issues thrown in. I mean, it's historical, granted, but it's less fantastic and more grounded, which is kind of like, I don't want to say out of character, but it, it changes the tone of the book. You know, like you said, Adam, it's kind of like a downer, which is pretty powerful. That was one of the, the interesting things I thought about Darwin Cook's choice with the little girl to, you know, again, we put it in historical context where, at, you know, at the time of the 50s, you know, that's that's probably not something that would, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, that's the way that, that thing would have went down. But you're reading it through today's eyes, and when you see that as you're, as you're reading along and you see what happens, you're just, you know, you'll, you have to double take it because you're, you can't believe that that's what actually happened. Again, putting that in the historical context. And then I thought it was really neat how he went through and showed the reaction to the news from not only the, the newscaster, the Edward R. R. Murrow type, and then intercut it with, you know, pictures of who this man was, um, family man, you know, church-going man, and then intercut it with scenes from, like, Metropolis and Philadelphia and Gotham, and then, you know, that's where, of course, where, like Reed was saying, we get, you know, John Jones's reaction to what's going on, but there again, it was... Uh, you know, the, the one from Metropolis is kind of cool. It has, um, you know, Clark and Lois in there watching the TV and their reaction and just everybody's reaction, you know, kind of stunned. And then we cut to Philadelphia where we have the barbershop and everybody just stops what they're doing to, to look what's going on in the news again. You know, what's that, what's that phrase, no, no quarter is given? I mean, it was relentless. I mean, his whole three-month smash and grab and take no prisoners was, I mean, that was in a row from the way the uh, Murrow kind of uh, reporter painted it as. I mean, if you talk about, you know, vigilantism, you know, there might have been heroes before, but it seems as though that, you know, John Henry was kind of along the lines in the same way as Batman, where he was just kind of like this, well, like we talked about with, you know, the war comics and stuff, this kind of like uh, one man kind of uh, Punisher-like war. And on this case, it was, you know, social justice. Absolutely. You got anything else on John Henry, Adam? Nope. Okay, so getting back to, I guess, the main sequence, the main storyline, the challengers of the unknown become famous. You see them, you know, at news footage at the theaters and and whatnot, so that everybody's kind of looking at the challengers as, you know, uh, fighting these, uh, you know, bizarre villains. And I would also say the same for uh, the Suicide Squad. In addition to that, Hal Jordan's going through training uh, under the supervision of uh, Carol and a few others at Ferris Air. But uh, leaving the movie theater is uh, Detective John Jones. And, of course, this is Martian Manhunter in his disguise, you know, partnered with Slam Bradley as well. And um, Batman uh, is in his apartment waiting for him. Batman holds the medallion in front of John Jones, and basically says, I don't know what you're up to, but I know you're up to something, <laughs> and scares the heck out of him, and basically says, you need to figure out what this is. It's all on you. I like the, uh, this is not a request line by Batman. I just think he nails the whole Batman persona, the way I like Batman anyway. Yeah, my favorite line from the whole thing, from this whole exchange is, it took a 70000 Dollar so a uh, sliver of meteor to stop the one in Metropolis. With you, all I need is a penny for a book of matches, and that look of fear on his face. And he even transforms back into his normal self after doing that. I just I love that that scene, and that was even carried over in the New Frontier and the animated as well. Yeah, I really like when he's back in the Martian form and he's got his head in his hands, kind of, and it's just like even though you know it's a, it's an alien shape, you could just tell you could read what he's thinking. You know, he's like, ah, oh, Christ, or whatever I pray to. 
<laughs> so now that Bax is on to Martian Manhunter's secret identity, we cut to the White House in which um, we see uh, Eisenhower uh, congratulating Wonder Woman with, it says, the Congressional Medal of Diplomatic Citizenship. And she starts uh, with her uh, women's, uh, women's lib line and is quickly cut off, and she Eisenhower uh, talks to her inside of the White House and says, uh, you know, thank you for what you do, but, you know, I, I have a lot to do myself, so I've, I've got I've to tend to that. At the same time, uh, Carol kind of uh, likewise surprises Hal with telling him what the real Ferris heir is up to. And um, when she, now talk about cool splash pages, they go down into a hole in the middle of the desert and a giant and vast underground complex. It looks like turbines and engines and all manner of uh, mechanical gizmos, not that unlike the gizmo one actually, are seen. And she introduces, you know, to the the man behind the curtain, so to speak, which is uh, Faraday. Now, Faraday, of course, uh, is one of, I'm not going to say one of the uh, greats in the DC spy kind of universe, but um, certainly, you know, Faraday's been in the war comics and whatnot as kind of like a government operative. Uh, He had some adventures on his own. He basically tells Hal that, okay, look, here's the deal. We got some crazy signals from Mars, and the deal is, this is his best exposition, and we have hit about halfway through the book, is that, you know, our... We're attempting to figure out what, where exactly this transformation, uh, transmission, excuse me, came from. And here's the real Ferris air. We're going to Mars. And Hal is basically charged with going to space, which, you know, if you think back to Chuck Yeager and everything that happened, you know, as prologue to this story, this is really Hal's story. It's going, going to the stars. This really is the uh, gateway to Hal's greater adventure, which will later to become, you know, a Green Lantern. I uh, agree with you. That splash page is great. And, and just the whole riding up in the middle of the desert and open a hatch and climbing down into a, a big old hole that's full of all this futuristic stuff just remind me a lot of a, a 60s uh, James Bond movie. And I thought that was great, real reminiscent of that and and that same type of technology you would see in a, a movie like that yeah i agree and even him sitting in the room like with the projector you know playing all of the i guess footage you could call it getting him up to speed on what's been going on just very 60s like spy and cold war espionage stuff like that yeah i love the uh the sign that it says 267 project days remaining i mean they even cut you know let everybody know how long until they're done if you look at the ferris air table where you see an aerial shot of that on 201, the design of that table, the kind of trying circular triangle, that's all I, I can explain it as, that's the uh, base for the New Frontier action figure line from DC Direct. So, um, like, I have my, I'm looking at my Martian Manhunter and my Flash DC Direct figures right now, and, you know, they're standing on those uh, Ferris Air uh, tables, which is pretty cool that they were able to lift that as figure stands, too, which is pretty slick. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah, I'm not much into the figures for on the DC side, but these have been ones that I've, t- I've been tempted from time to time to pick up just because, like I said, I love this this piece of work so much, I think. And they did such a – the sculpts on those on that line are, are pretty good, too. I think you know, like the uh, Perez line that's out, like the Brian Bolin line, and I'll even say um, 
Not not for all of them, but for most of the Ivan Rice and Ethan Van Skyver sculpts. I mean, the New Frontier ones are pretty standout. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. And there's a pack of Green Lantern, Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman that's being re-released, kind of like the um, Justice Alex Ross figures. So those should be in stores relatively soon over the summer here. So you can just you know like grab them all, Russ, for like thirty bucks or something, instead of finding them on eBay for on a significant amount more. Yeah, I'll have to keep an eye on that. Um, John digs the book out of evidence and he puts the charm or medallion inside the book. And I guess in true Indiana Jones fashion, the book opens and it tells the tale of this Viking, this ancient Viking. And remember, the book and the medallion came from the cult that he and Batman broke up. And it tells the tale of this kind of, like, lone Viking who lands on this mysterious island who battles these um, ridiculous dragon demons, which, of course, we see as dinosaurs. And John uh, sees this illustration of this kind of, like, you know the 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 great all-seeing eye that's on the back of the pyramid on the on the on like dollar bills. It's kind of the same thing here, only it's in the shape of a globe with the rest of the cosmos around it. And John says that he can't resist touching it, so he touches the page on the book, and he says, uh, "Death and the endless suffering, fire, extinction. It's not coming. It's already here." So this kind of like malevolent force that. Um, he's been charting that Batman's been on the case with. He quickly realizes that, you know, this madness is already here. And of course we connect, you know, this story with Dinosaur Island. And we realize at this point as readers that Dinosaur Island is this enemy who I'll just name right now as um, the center. So this is John's uh, telepathy powers at work in the basement of the uh, archives and the police or evidence lockers, I guess, at the police station, and he totally gets wigged out. I love the change in art style, too, when, you know, it shows the book opens, and then we get a page turn, and then it, you know, goes to this, you know, style where it looks like you're, you know, the reader is reading the book, you know, along with John, so we get the the, the different style and art to go along with, what, you know, what we're seeing. Yeah, I agree with Adam that this is where it really came together. Reading it for the first time up until this point, you can almost get the feeling like it's kind of like an anthology of different stories maybe but this is kind of like it was kind of like an aha moment where everything you know you probably had a feeling that everything was connected before but this is where you really say oh you know dinosaur island and it, it starts to all click that it's going to converge back at the station house John's interrogating someone who is in the words of the cops uh, nutty as a fruitcake they've been getting nothing but stories from him, but he's claiming to, uh, you know, have visions and be seeing, uh, you know, little green men <laughs> that John, you know, kind of laughs at. He says uh, his name is Harry Leader, and uh, the history is, you know, bewildering. He says that he's seen evidence of uh, Martians, and, and the cops are playing this off as though he's delusional. And then all of a sudden, who comes in but uh, the man who previously just tried to kidnap Barry Allen, the Flash, unsuccessfully, which is, uh, again, Agent Faraday. And uh, Harry knows that, uh, you know, anybody in uh, government issue, it seems, dark suits, uh, you know, cannot be anything good. They take him away to what I would only guess would be the loony bin or wherever they keep him, maybe with uh, Vandal Savage underneath under, underneath the uh, topsoil and underground, like where they kept John. So it's a, a, a quick ending to uh, this 
uh, Steve Buscemi look lookalike character. And uh, John realizes at the end of this, uh, after talking to Faraday and shaking his hand again with the uh, mental powers, that, my God, uh, they're going to Mars, his home planet. Hello? John's Wait. really intrigued, too, by what this guy's story is. He, you know, he feels like he knows, he's not just an idiot rambling, that he actually knows something and seems interested in wanting to get to the bottom of it. And then, of course, you know, Faraday comes in and sweeps in and takes this guy away and you know, John just can't keep his attention off of off of what's going on. Onto Paradise Island, Diana is um, enjoying the life in Themyscira, and she basically says that you know it's not that she was forced out; she could go back in when she wants. But you know, the country needs a leader, and this is her uh, call to action to Superman, saying that the country needs a leader. This is taken uh, in a completely different direction when we get. Well, which I always thought was very cool. I always liked these pages because we all know that Dr. Seuss was a nut anyway. He had to have been, right? Um, with all the crazy tales like the Lorax or the Cat in the Hat or whatever. Um, you see an artist at the drawing board with a gun next to him. Now, I don't know if, if he's on the monthly deadline. I don't know if he's you know, doing another uh, you know, Civil War tie-in that he has to get done. But this Dr. Seuss look-alike, sound-alike, sound-alike artist is uh, not unlike Darwin Cook, uh, doing writing and um, art details on his book. And he says he's telling a simple story, but he is writing as though he himself is uh, this malevolent force that John found. It says, I've grown restless in my youth and yearn to explore the other spheres that cycle endlessly around the glowing center of my world. I shall feed and I shall grow, as always, from the center. And it's like um, the center is kind of talking through him. This is kind of an odd sequence, but it's kind of like there's no hope. You know, this guy reaches for his gun, and then we see Wally, uh, excuse me, Barry Allen jump on TV while John's watching, and he says, you know, he retires. And then he actually uses Edgar R. Murrow's line, good night and good luck. And John's kind of like, oh, man, now what? And this is kind of like the, uh, I'm not going to say the end to all things, but it's looking pretty dire. The artist here that's doing this, this is interesting because this is really the opening scene of the New Frontier video where you get this guy at the table kind of crazy, has the gun, and, you know, he shoots himself, and that's what starts the, the show, you know, where they tell, you know, the stories of what's going on. So that was interesting because, you know, again, it's a cartoon, and it starts off with, you know, basically a guy putting a gun to his head and shooting himself. So, you know, right away you know this isn't, you know, one for the kiddies and something I was surprised that they went with. Yeah, I agree. That was very surprising to me. Just because you figure it's something that, well, let me put it this way. You know things are going to get chopped in, in a, in a book this size when they're making an animated, you know, movie out of it. And you just figure that the suicide would be a no-brainer just to make it more kid-friendly. And it's something that could be left out in terms of the story. But they went with it right off the bat, like you said. In the book, it's more implied than it is in the animated. I mean, in the animated, you actually get him picking up the gun, putting it to his head, and then it cuts before, but you hear the bang. Um, in the book, he's just kind of reaching for it, and that's all we see. So, again, we get the implication, but in the animated, I think it's much more powerful because it, it definitely leaves no, you know, no question in anybody's mind that that's what's going on. The voice of the center is pretty crazy in the animated one, too, if I recall correctly. It's like... Michael Dorn in an echo chamber, uh, <laughs> you know, as far as how it sounds. It's, it's pretty, it, it's actually, I think, intimidating. 
and just to back up a little bit, that, that sequence beforehand on Paradise Island where we get Superman and Wonder Woman, again, it's, I think it shows the naivete of Superman where, you know, we know the truth of why Diana's, you know, back on Paradise Island and, you know, just kind of, you know, drinking wine and reading out of a book, you know, eating fruit, you know, while her fellow Themyscirans are, you know, bathing openly in the pond. But Cal doesn't believe that, you know, when she tells him, well, you know, hey, I, you know, I didn't retire. They, they forced me out. He, you know, he does, he just, it doesn't compute with him. And then she kind of goes back to do her own thing. And you can see, you know, Cal looking back at her kind of sad. Um, so I think, you know, this is where we start to see the, the picture, you know, the picture that Cal's putting together that he's being manipulated and somewhat of a pawn. And, you know, again, his own, you know, naivete about, you know, what's really going on in the world and how, how the political machine is turning. Well, it's blast off time for Hal. And uh, he and, and uh, Flag and a whole crew of others, like uh, Grace and uh, uh, Mr. Jess Bright, are uh, put aboard the space, uh, I guess, rocket ship uh, at Ferris Air. And uh, as the countdown goes, uh, John Jones shows up in his Martian form. Faraday sees him uh, amidst the smoke and runs out to confront him. Uh, John says he doesn't want to interfere. He just wants to go home and you know tries to get aboard the ship. But the ignition sequence starts, and John well knows that if these engines go off, first of all, he's afraid of fire. Well, he's vulnerable to fire, I guess. And then, you know, second of all, Faraday's toast as well. So John saves the life of Faraday and how rockets to the stars. This uh, happens while uh, Adam Strange is reading about Ray Palmer, who will come into play later, while he's locked away in Arkham, right? This uh, crazy, quote-unquote, spaceman who can travel on light beams uh, to another totally uh, different uh, space and time and, and dimension. Things do not go too well up in space for Hal later on, but as uh, John's taken prisoner by Faraday, um, you know, he he wants to find, John says, hope that things will be okay. Uh, just bright uh, as the ship's breaking down, uh, gets lost in space, no pun there, and uh, Operation Flying Cloud isn't going good. Uh, the Challengers uh, are set off to go help them out, and Superman's called in as well. And we'll finish this up in just a second. But a pretty cool sequence with Superman and what has to be, well, it's a giant robot. That's got to be Toy Man. Things are starting to certainly get ratcheted up there as far as how. Yeah, that sequence on two that you were mentioning, Adam, on 257 and 258 is with uh Adam Strange and Arkham is one of the things that was added for the Absolute. So again, that's not something that's in the the regular um, book. Is is that sequence where he he has the Scientific American with Ray Palmer on the cover? I'd like to say, Russ, that like to add stuff in. First of all, you re- there's you really have to love your project. You know what I mean? I mean, like for him to go back and for J Bone to ink and for the colors and everything to happen too. I've, I haven't seen that happen in an Absolute yet. I mean, there's bonus features and stuff, but, I mean, I want to say that this is kind of like a new standard as far as going back and adding other pages and sequences entirely, in some cases, into this. I mean, this, is a, this isn't really, a, you know, a common thing in uh, the absolute verse of, of DC, especially publishing. Yeah, most of this stuff is added, you know, by the time it trades, a lot of this stuff is added in, and this was one that, you know, was traded prior to... The absolute, and then was was given absolute treatment. You know, fairly. I mean, comp- compared to when this book was published versus when it got the absolute treatment, was pretty 
narrow. I mean, this came out in 04. The Absolute's been out for a couple years now. So I, I remember I took it with me to San Diego in 07, and it had been out for a while. So this one got Absolute treatment, you know, probably within two years or right around two years from, from it going out, whereas most of the other stuff takes, you know, at least several years before uh, coming out. I guess maybe the upcoming Justice is another example of, of one that's kind of gotten the fast track. Oh, that's been a couple of years though. I've been waiting for that one. <laughs> Didn't we? Yeah, yeah. Were we talking about ordering that? That's it was a pretty good deal for half off. Yeah, but it's, it doesn't come out till November. So yeah, that's the bad thing. I wait till the end of the month in November. Maybe I'll get my order up a little bit. I really like the Martian Manhunter stuff. I I know we went over this last issue, but I really like his look and and the pages of him in in captivity, like behind the glass and like the I guess government hidden base or, or or wherever they are just again it's like real like area 51 like cold war secret stuff and i really dig the panel where uh you know you see him behind the glass in like room number seven or whatever i just like the real alien look to him now i know they've gone back and they've they've done that look in uh some of the more recent uh mainstream dc stuff is this uh a look that I don't know if you know, you're aware that he had had before that in any earlier DC comics. I don't. I think it's somewhat similar to his original, like his true form. Um, not this rough, I don't think, but the head shape and the you know the limbs and everything. It's it's somewhat similar. Adam could probably speak that a little better than me, but yeah, I think you know, probably I the closest you've seen is after he got killed in Final Crisis, the Requiem series, the Requiem one shot. Sorry, that Doug Monkey did. Really, really had John in like full on alien, and I could only imagine, you know, even though he had his new costume in, he, you know, that he probably got some direction uh, from John's design from this one because I haven't really seen anyone draw him like Darwin has, and I think that we haven't really seen John, even with the character reboot, in that kind of, uh, let me just gonna say that in that alien of a way. Even though you know we all know that to be true now, uh, for Blackest Night, which is coming up from all the promo stuff that they've had, John isn't in his alien form. Um, he's in his like shape shifted uh, pseudo human form that you know he'll become later on as the last in the last few chapters or so. And actually, for Blackest Night, he still has the hole through his chest that uh, Libra put through, so he's not looking too good. But then again, not many are in, <laughs> in Blackest Night. It's true. It's it's a traditional take on it, but it's still Darwin's own. You know, I mean, it it's, it still is kind of like uh, heightened as far as that goes. But I, I still think it's just like he looks more alien curled up on the center of the uh, prison floor than I think he does when he's creeping around in Doctor Ordell's lab or anything. Because he just looks like it looks like a pound, like he's just a dog behind or a scared animal behind glass. And, you know, and he'll even say to Faraday later on, you know, <laughs> you know, I can escape from here. Right. But he doesn't. You know, he's he's like you said, he's holding out hope. I love we see the uh, some of the other inhabitants, like you mentioned before, Adam, in the Air Force base, you know, Battle Savage. And so just, uh, Leonard oh, Snart, which is Captain Cold, uh, is, is number four. I don't know if any of these others ring a bell, obviously. Captain Cold. And you guys have the bigger version of the book is. Oh, I'm sorry. So seven is unknown, but is that where John is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I couldn't read. I, I couldn't tell if it said unknown, and then when I realized it was number seven, I just kind of put two and two together. 
Yeah, and then at the bottom of the page, you see Vandal Savage in Cell 3 kind of looking on. So the challengers take off. Faraday's like, I can't believe everybody's going on this. Uh, the Gizmo One shoots two torpedoes onto the rocket ship. Uh, they cling on to the ship, and uh, they try the rescue mission to get Grace and to get Flag out of there. They are completely on fire because of the speed and velocity at which they're traveling. Superman comes in uh, from his fight with, I guess, the Toy Man. These guys are saved. So a funeral at Arlington to bury the dead, and we're going to cut back to Ferris Aircraft, where Hal is talking shop with the mechanic Tom. And uh, Jeff Johns handled um, this the same way, but back way back when in the Silver Age, Tom's nickname was Pie Face. And, you know, like any other number of epithets, you know, this was, you know, ridiculously racist. Kind of like, well, in our terms now, you know what I mean? I'm not going to say that, like, the writers were racist because that's ridiculous. But, like, you know, Tom was called Pie Face for the longest time. That was his nickname. Just like, just this think of it as like a caricature, just kind of like Ebony was in Will Eisner's The Spirit. You know, just kind of like a, a short round kind of Indiana Jones type character. But, uh, you know, Tom sets him straight. And, uh, you know, the relationship that Hal and Tom have uh, continues today at Ferris Air in, in the current run of things. Um, Hal's just uh, hanging out in the cockpit of one of the testing facilities and a green light surrounds him. And you know what happens after this, right? So he's in the simulator and then, bam, he's gone. Challengers are uh, healing on the mountain. And we cut to Hal in the desert, and in his hand he has a green ring, and he also has the green power battery. And he walks up to Abensur, and he starts putting rocks over the alien's body. And he says that it's a proper burial for a fallen warrior. So it's kind of like, while all that's going on, uh, Hal's already accepted the ring, and he already has the power battery, and he, he's uh, you know about to bury his... I'm going to say five-minute-long mentor in Abensur. This kind of uh, donor is, is, is another type of uh, character in literature. Think of, like, uh, the fairy godmother in Cinderella, where this, you know, like I said, I think last episode, this Gandalf-type character comes in, and in the case of the donor archetype, just kind of gives the hero magical implements, like, uh, you know, what did, you know, uh, Cinderella get? She got, like, mascara, push-up bra, and some lipstick, you know? So she was looking all good. Well, Hal gets some jewelry, but it's a ring and a power battery, and that's going to close out Chapter 9. A heck of a space rescue, guys, and although we know the story, it's told in a really chopped-up manner as far as Hal getting the Green Lantern ring here. Yeah, and this sequence, this is where the movie and the book really diverge. You know, what happens in in the book and the movie is very different on, on this sequence and how Superman comes to the rescue and um, and who he rescues and how it's just Flag that's on the ship and well the you know the whole Challengers thing got cut from the from the movie so so it's really you know brief and this whole you know Jordan's on the ship with Flag and and how he gets you know Superman is able to save you know Jordan and Flag goes down, basically goes down with the ship because of all the explosives and there's nothing Superman can do to save him. Yeah, I think they had nukes on the ship, right? Yeah, yeah. Just in case they had anything. Well, they encountered anything, you know, nuts on Mars. And that whole sequence with Superman and the robot is just just cracks me up. I'll tell you the the Green Lantern origin, it's like in fast forward, but it it works, you know. I think he found a way to to get it done in in how many pages? Basically four or five. Right. All the important stuff yeah. is there, though. 
<laughs> yeah. Then in the next chapter, we kind of, you know, as we'll see next, you know, we'll kind of kind of backs up a little bit and flushes out some more details. So, kind of a, uh, I mean, a lot, a lot covered, you know, in in this last section, well over a hundred pages, and I think this is a good second act to the book. I mean, you know, the best stuff's, you know, usually in the middle. That's not just Oreo cookies, but like, I mean, I really felt that reading this. I, I really felt that this was kind of like the good middle chapter. I still really wasn't clear as far, you know, reading it the first time, like what the whole island, what the whole, uh, the center was. But as we'll see next time, the center pretty much is the quintessential Silver Age kind of villain. It's almost like, in some respects, that like the Earth itself is kind of like its own enemy. You know, it's like uh, space, with a space race and all, it's like Earth is the, in space itself. It's kind of like uh, your, own, your, your own worst enemy in some cases. But um, I don't know. I, I think it was a really good middle chapter overall. I mean, it, it, pretty satisfying. I mean, there's not too many, like, dangling threads other than, okay, when what's going to happen here? But with all the switches in narration from Abin Sir later to John to Hal to Ace Morgan, who... I mean, I'll, and I'll even cop to this, like you guys said, don't have a lot of experience with, or the challengers. I think it was uh, pretty full-bodied. Yeah, I liked it. I liked it. Uh, it picked up steam here for me. The Green Lantern stuff was great. The uh, the Martian Manhunter story pushed forward, and the little, like, if you want to call them cameos by Batman popping in and out, and of course the John Henry um, edition. I thought it was. I thought this was very strong. Something we didn't talk too much about was was the Flash parts of of the story, and I I thought that speaks a lot to what goes on with the Flash as the story goes along with with him. Basically, you know, all he's trying to do is good, and and he Faraday and crew try to capture him, and uh, then he decides, well, this isn't worth it, and, and gives it up. And I, I think that's uh, really building. I'd say not only is this a big Green Lantern story, like we've said, but this is really a, a big Barry Allen story as well. Yeah, you kind of look at where great. the government is in the book. They're looking to the stars, literally, but their own home turf is not. There's something rotten in Denmark, and it's in this case, it's you know racism, it's segregation. Before you go off looking, you know, for other you know intelligent life forms, <laughs> make sure that you know everyone treats each other like human beings from here to begin with, you know. And that's uh, the eye of government, in in this case, Faraday. And I, I know he's not a philanthropist or, uh, you know, social activist, but talk about mixed priorities. But then at the same time, we wouldn't have Hal end up the way he is, too, and where he is. Yeah, that scene where they net, you know, with Grodd and they try and capture Flash is another great sequence from the movie that was, you know, maintained. Where just as he's about to tranquilize him, you know, he, he's able to vibrate through and, and take off. Yeah, he's a great line. I don't know if it's, I'd have to look at the page again, but in the movie he says, are you going to try to shoot me? People have tried that before. I think that's a great line. Do you think this book is um, new reader friendly? Like if, like, would you, would you recommend this to someone who wouldn't necessarily have a lot of experience with comics? Or do you think that Ace Morgans and the Faradays and the Ferrises are too plentiful for someone to follow this? I would recommend this as a book to try out the DC Universe, and that's come from when I got back into comics around 2004. This is one of the first things I picked up uh, of DC, uh, besides like some Batman stuff. It really set me off on wanting to find out more about these characters. 
and I actually have a friend who's uh, just now gaining the comics, and this is something I uh, told him he would really like, and he has really been enjoying it so far. And actually, it's led him to, uh, he just borrowed Rebirth from me following that, so uh, he's really enjoying it. Yeah, my it, it's funny, my sister-in-law enjoys the Justice League cartoon, and um, you know, I've got the season one DVD and, let, and watch that, and then she watched the, uh, the New Frontier Blu-ray that I've got, and she really enjoyed that. And I said, well, you know, if you really want the full effect, you know, and I gave her the absolute read. And she, she doesn't read comics. She's never read comics. She, you know, really not interested in that at all. But, you know, she, she enjoyed it pretty much, or, you know, quite quite well. Again, I, th- I think it's fairly new reader-friendly. I think, that, you know, this is the beginnings and the birth of, you know, of the DCU, like we talked about. And I think there's a lot of Easter eggs. There's a lot of, in, you know, in-jokes, if you will, and stuff like that for longtime readers and folks that are a little more familiar with the uh, – source material as to who these people are, but, you know, even if you're not, you know, you're kind of seeing them as they would have appeared um, in time, so I, I, I don't see where, you know, somebody would have a real hard time following what's going on. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the, I think it stands alone perfectly fine, but the great thing about it is, is that if you want to dig further into it, the characters are people that you can find in the DC universe, but you don't necessarily have to know who they are to, to follow it. You know, they just um, released a reprint edition of the Perez Wolfman history of the DC universe a few weeks back. And, you know, that came out right after, uh, excuse me, uh, right around uh, crisis on infinite earths back in the eighties. And, you know, and I, and I, and I bought that again to have a new, you know, pristine copy. Mine old ones all torn up and whatnot. I really like, if I'm looking at the Alpha and the Omega, I look at James Robinson's The Golden Age, which uh, Comic Geek Speak did as a book of the month, so check out that episode. I look at The New Frontier as part two, and I actually look at Kingdom Come as, you know, part whatever. I mean, because there's so many parts in between. I really look at, you know, uh, Silver Age and New Frontier as the Alpha and Kingdom Come is the Omega, even though we know it's a separate Earth and stuff, but of the, of the DCU. And, you know, uh, continuity be damned. I think that this is just, uh, this is too artful, and this is too, uh, I think, impressive and emotional for it uh, not to be canon. And I, I'm certainly not a heckler or a scholar on continuity or, or comics or anything. I, I can, I'm a better critic than anything, I think, but... Um, this is such an amazing piece that, in my own mind, I, I always feel that you know, New Frontier, if, we, if it was to be tasked to someone to lay out the groundwork for you know, origins, for uh, first meetings, and for, well, first team-ups, which this book eventually leads to, the first team-up of the JLA, I, I really look at New Frontier as, as this book. Yeah, it's funny. I saw that um, History of the DC Universe thing, and they were... I was I was almost tempted to pick it up, and then I looked at the price, and wasn't it like twelve or fifteen bucks or something like that? It was up there, but I got mine online, so. Yeah, I, sh- I should have done that because it know. was like I mean, originally it was just a two issue, basically a two issue mini. It may have been double sized or whatever, but mm-hmm. I was like, yep. man, for for twenty four, twenty five year old reprint of a two issue that time probably buck fifty, buck and a quarter miniseries, I just, it was just a little too too steep for me. And then I started thinking about how much of that is relevant now, now that, you know, everything's kind of gone back to, you know, pretty much Silver Age, almost pre-crisis timeline too, but um, mm-hmm. but it's one of those things I've always wanted to read and I just never picked it up. 
How about I send you my old copy? There you go. I'll take All right. It. We'll get that on there. <laughs> hey, guys, any other thoughts or anything before we uh, shove off this mortal coil for this week? No, I, I think that's so. about it. Yeah, the only thing I say is I think in this month's previews, in the in the May previews, I think they are soliciting the newest copy of the newest edition. They've gone back and reprinted New Frontier and Absolute. So, again, like we said 50,000 times before, if you haven't got the Absolute, definitely pick it up. This is, to me, the cream of the crop of the Absolutes. This is everything that should be in an Absolute as far as annotations and artwork and explanations, and it's all from Darwin Cook. Just really, really, really solid extras. Now, speaking of the reprint, before we leave here, I know that when we were finishing up um, Watchmen, Reed, you were looking on eBay for the absolutes, and they were pretty outrageous in price, though, because they've become so scarce, right? Yeah, they were. I was finding them going anywhere from low 400 to $500 there for a couple months around December and January. I think they have came down, um, and they probably really came down now that they've been resolicited, but uh, last I looked at they they were sent around $100. Yes, and I, I believe I told Russ to sell his first print before they announced a new printing. Is that correct, Russ? Yeah, <laughs> you did, and I should have. Because this yeah, is like a $75, $75 cover. I think I paid maybe $35, $40 bucks for it. I found a really good deal brand new on eBay before it kind of got hyped up before the DVD. Like I said, it was over two years ago that I bought this Absolute. So once again, I should have listened to Sage advice and did not. <laughs> yeah, I was going to sell it too, and, and I just couldn't pull the trigger. <laughs> it's it's my favorite book I have probably. It's it's bizarre with the printing. I know I talked about this on our What the Dudes Want for Christmas episode, but DC is so erratic with uh, their publishing of the Absolutes. Because, you know, Danger Girl, The Authority, League of Extraordinary, they've never seen the light of day again for absolute printings. And if, which, which says, you know, if they're sold out, then people bought them, <laughs> you know? Like, League of Extraordinary is right up there, Reed, as far as price goes. And I didn't well, I- want to sell this one either, so I just kind of, like, kept it. But um, the spine on this one's busted. It was like that when I got it, you know? So I'll be putting this uh, on eBay as soon as I get my new one in the mail with the uh, New Frontier special issue uh, that Darwin Cook released through DC when the when the uh, DVD came out. Yeah, I, I don't understand. I mean, it's a little off topic, but I don't understand sometimes where somebody at DC is not, like, trolling, the, like, Amazon and trolling eBay and looking for all these absolutes or collected editions that are going for five and ten times their, you know, their published price and go, geez, that's the perfect you know, opportunity for us to, to go back to the well on that because obviously there's demand. If people are paying that much of a premium, there's obviously significant demand. And, you know, for them to not keep these things in print, you know, I mean, I, I get the, the counter argument to some degree is if, if, if there's so many of them out there, then nobody wants them and it's when there's scarcity. But, you know, there's got to be some gauge out there for, like you're saying, for Lever Extraordinary Gentleman, for, you know, Watchmen for a while, for New Frontier that, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, Somebody's not gauging that, and, and you know, Marvel's the same example. They're omnibus. I mean, you know, you miss the boat on an omnibus, and you're kind of SOL because you know, try and find it, you know. And some of them get reprinted. You know, I think they've reprinted, you know, both of the X Men on the buy, but you know, try and find the Bendis Daredevil omnibus and not pay, you know, 150 bucks or 200 dollars for, you know, a hundred dollar omnibus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, like they they would reprint the Captain America one. I have the second printing of, of the Cap omnibus. But that's pretty much not into itself on my on my 
shelves as it is. I think, you know, I, and I slap my forehead every time I see it, but I, I think the biggest mistake I made was not getting the authority, uh, volume one and volume two, because man alive, those are pretty rough to find. Yeah. Well, guys, um, hey, thanks for jumping on for uh, New Frontier Part 2. You're going to get uh, New Frontier Wrap-Up Part 3 in two weeks. You can check out um, our backlog at legionofdudes.com, and be sure to check out Brad, Frank, and Bill with, my guess is, only a legion, not even comparable to ours, of uh, random topics and fun things to talk about with Half Hour Wasted. You can listen to them on Sundays, and we will see you back here next Thursday. So, guys, thanks for another good episode. And all you listeners, send all your comments to comments at Legion of Dudes, and we'll talk to you next week. Good night. See ya. Good night.